Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> I have had a bad opinion or two in my day. No, nope, not me. Not ever. No, all right. All of my opinions are 100% good mm. and correct. Uh, <laughs> nah. I mean, as a person who's known you for almost a decade. Nah. Yes, you can definitely affirm that all of my opinions are good and correct. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to go on record on saying that. <laughs> Just won't even play along with me. I need fantasy. you to it's rethink so your views on Taylor Swift. <laughs> Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. And this week we're going back to Spain, kinda. Uh, it's the <laughs> Spanish Golden Age playwright Sor Juana, House of Desires. Except she, this is this is actually so like a Latin American she, playwright, well, she's right? She's Mexican. She's Mexican, but yeah. in the in the time period in which we are. Uh, it's New Spain, so right. okay. it it counts. It counts as Yay, Spain. Colonizing. It's, it's, okay. Yeah, it's Spain's global empire. <laughs> right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but thank yep. you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Yeah. So each week, what we do here is we discuss a different play. Sometimes it's Shakespeare. More recently, it has not been Shakespeare. Um, this week, it is a 101 level episode. Aubrey, tell the people what that means. That means introductory stuff all <gasps> you're gonna need to know i know what this is mind mind-blowing content everything you need to know to have a what? general understanding everything everything literally down to the letter <laughs> everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its themes and other cool stuff like our opinions which are always cool and never bad <laughs> lies <laughs> i know all right, well let's let's talk about shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, it's happy hour time. Yep. Mm. Uh that means it's a cocktail of stuff that makes us happy in this dumpster fire that is life oftentimes. Yeah. Um Yeah. My recommendation is actually not something that directly makes me happy, but it is something that makes my dog happy, which indirectly makes me happy. Yep. Um, I would like to recommend um, if anybody else has uh, an intense little chewer on their hands, um, I do. Uh, Miss Boo is a, you know, she's a pit bull puppy. And she just loves to chew, 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 chew on things with her big, strong jaws. Um, and so I would like to recommend uh, the not necessarily Himalayan brand, because there are a lot of brands, but like the, the Himalayan technique of the yak and cow cheese sticks. That sounds really gross. And I didn't describe it very well. But basically, I mean, it sounds they're delicious. These, they're but, they're these know. very hard bricks of cheese um, that dogs can chew on. And they're a mix of yak and cow cheese, and they're like really, really, really hard. Um, 
almost to to like a bone except that they don't break off or they shouldn't a good quality one shouldn't break off in shards that'll hurt the dog um and they don't smell nearly as bad as bully sticks which i love bully sticks are great and, and really good for dogs but they stink because they're a hundred percent bull pizzle that's that's disgusting um and they 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 smell exactly as you would think they smell but the himalayan cheese stick just smells kind of smoky like cheese <laughs> so so it takes my dog days instead of hours to finish one off i mean it takes her days um and especially if you get like a little um kong not kong brand because kong doesn't specifically make these but they're um I think the brand is called Jughead, where you can actually stick the cheese stick into it. So it's kind of encased a little bit in rubber with a few openings for the dog to chew on the cheese stick. So even the most intense chewers, like you can really get a lot of life out of the cheese stick. Um, and it, it just takes her forever to finish it off. Uh, so, you know, get yourself and your heavy, heavy chewer. Um, it's much more economical than a bully stick as well. So like get your heavy chewer, a cheese stick. It's nice. It's nice for the dogs and therefore nice for you and your wallet. Get Your Heavy Chewer a Cheese Stick is the name of my next album. Excellent. <laughs> Glad I could help you out. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, so this is super dumb, the thing that I'm recommending. But I learned two days ago from one of my students that you can change... Uh, if you if you have a, a a Mac, you can change the highlight color on your computer. Mm -hmm. um, you go into settings and then appearance and you can change the color. Um, like I think system default is like blue. You know, if you're like mm -hmm. copying, pasting, you highlight, whatever. So I changed mine to pink and it makes me so happy. <laughs> and it's so dumb. Um, and I love it. So that's my recommendation is find something truly but, dumb yeah. that just makes you so happy. Simple like every but time, profound. Yeah. Every time I click on something now, it's just like, oop, it's pink. Whoop, it's pink. Oh, it's so pink. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, and it, it makes me happy. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> Great. Yeah. You know, simple but profound things going mm -hmm. on over here today. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So uh, this is a playwright we've never encountered before. And on a 101 no. episode, that means we do a little segment called Meet the Contemporary. This time it's Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. This is your life. Yeah, that's her name. Um, so she was born 1648, lived until 1695, not a terribly long life, you know. Um, she was a nun of the Order of St. Jerome, lived in Mexico. She was a writer, poet, philosopher, and composer. Wow. Um, and like the coolest thing about her, right? Okay, is that so she she becomes a nun, right? She grows up, she's not born a nun. That's not how nuns are made. No. Um, but she grows <laughs> up, she becomes a nun. She joins her convent in 1669. Okay, so she is 21-ish. Mm -hmm. Um, and so she writes a renunciation of the greater world and she signs it in her own blood. Girl, that's so like, extra metal as hell i love it um but also like okay so when you think of a convent right you're like ooh, prayers at 5 a.m right 
you know, no talking and you get one bowl of gruel for lunch and you like it and that, like that's it. Um, but her convent was not that way. So like most of the nuns had private living quarters that were two floors. Spoiled. They had their own bathrooms they had their own kitchens and they had their own servants oh my yeah which does not sound i mean it sounds like a hell of a time frankly and i would like to go be a nun there um sweet deal right sounds like super sweet so because of uh the the space and the freedom that she was afforded she was able to amass a large private library she learned to read and to write um not too sorry she did not learn to read and write she had opportunity to learn and write, you know, to like further her studies. She already knew Mm -hmm. how to read and write Um, and to hold salons, you know, with other intellectuals and writers and artists. Um, She's so cool. She's so fucking badass. I love her. I just, I love her. She, she earned the nickname, the 10th muse and the American Phoenix because she was so great at what she did. Wow. Um, Wait, who's calling her this? Who's calling a nun the 10th muse? People. Like, you know, greater society, her fans. Wow. Yeah. Like she she gained enough sort of notoriety for that. I I guess with her salons and stuff. She's having, she's rubbing shoulders with the great. She's also like writing these plays. They're being performed, right? She's a big time thinker and writer. So she's out there in the world, right? Um, She was super fucking feminist. Uh, She wrote critiques of misogyny. She wrote critiques of the patriarchy. She advocated for women's rights. um, And then she died of the plague. Uh, Yeah, which and had a hard time before that, which we'll get to uh, a little bit later. Um, And then of of the major playwrights of the Spanish Golden Age, Sor Juana is the only woman, which is also pretty cool i mean also pretty sad but like pretty cool pretty cool yeah it is very cool Mm -hmm. yeah as you would say metal as hell i would say that (laughs) i mean look okay you you know we think about metal as hell women right we think about like mary shelley giving up her virginity on her mom's grave and like walking around with her husband's embalmed heart for the rest of her life after he died like it's metal metal as hell right um i personally think that if you write yourself a renunciation of society and you go off and join a nunnery and you sign that shit in your own blood i i think you're metal yeah so she was born in mexico or was she a spanish transplant no i believe she was born there although okay uh don't quote me on that because i'm not actually a sorjuana expert um because that yeah, would no, set her apart. There. Yeah, that would set her apart from oh, obviously from the other Spanish Golden Age playwrights mm-hmm. too. Is that you know she's only Spanish by colonization. She's actually like yeah, she's Mexican. <laughs> she's born in, in what is now Mexico, which is super cool for Mexico. Um, yeah, she was born in New Spain, which is near modern Tepe. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm. Is that one of those fun Aztec spellings? I think so. It's got an X in there. Can you spell it? T-E-P-E-T-I-L-X-P-A. Um, yes. So she was born, she was born in Mexico. Died in Mexico. She's Mexican all the way down. That's so rad. Yeah. 
That's awesome. She also spoke three languages. So, of course she did. Look yeah. at all the spare time she had right? doing all the things. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Fucking amazing. Way to I go, know. Sor Juana. She's, she's so cool. Anyway. So cool. Carrying on. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So Sor Juana, that was your life. Um, now we're going to talk about the play, one of the plays that she wrote. Uh, we're going to start with a five-word unhelpful title. This play also has a character named Celia in it, so that's what inspired my five-word unhelpful title, and it is deeply unhelpful. My title is Not the Celia You Think. Mm. Uh, mine is <laughs> Even the Spanish Mistake Identities. Yes, indeed they do. It's not not unique to England. <laughs> yep. There's also early modern Spanish facial blindness. Yeah. Sure. All right. Uh, anyway. So let's let's rock through these characters. Small play, not not a whole lot of characters. Um, yeah, yeah. So we're going to start with Doña Ana, who is a noblewoman. She is the sister to Don Pedro. She is loved by Don Juan, and she is in love with Don Carlos. She's just got all kinds. What of What kind of play do you think this is going to be, Aubrey? A tragedy, a revenge yeah, tragedy. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. Everybody dies in the end. <laughs> all Spoilers. the dons. That's, yep, they're all that's not true. Nobody <laughs> dies. <laughs> um, okay, Doña Ana has a maid named Celia. There's also Doña Leonor, who is a noblewoman also, and she is in love with Don Carlos. <gasps> a love triangle, my favorite. <laughs> it's not the only one. <laughs> Yep. Uh, then there's Don Carlos himself, a nobleman. He is in love with Leonor, and he's pursued by Anna. Which one will he choose? Oh. Uh, Don Carlos has a servant. His name is Castaño. Then there's Don Pedro, a another nobleman. Uh, it's Doña Anna's brother. He is also in love with Leonor. <gasps> love triangle number two. Yeah. Don Rodrigo is, again, another noble. They're just all noble. Um, yeah. And he is Leonor's papa. Yes. And then there's Don Juan, another nobleman. You guessed it. He's in love with Anna. Yeah. Is it? If, it's not the Don Juan, though. No. Not, no, no. Okay. No. Okay. Um, and if we were being English about it, we'd say Don Juan, which... We we would. We're not gonna do because why would we? It's why not. Would we do that. We won't do that. Anyway, no. so uh, <laughs> why should this play be so goddamn popular? I mean, who doesn't love a bunch of mistaken identity and love triangles, right? You know, written by a nun, written a by metal nun. as hell nun. Yeah, yeah. Like I I would love to see it. I, I think would it's great. also I'm, love to see it. They did it at the Globe in, um, no, not the Globe. They did it at the RSC in 2004. Oh, wow. A while so, you ago. know, 20 years ago. Shut your face. That I shan't. 20 years ago. I mean, okay, it was 19. I'm rounding up, but like. <laughs> no, still. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Horrifying, right? <laughs> It is, considering that I spent half of 2004 in the UK. So <gasps> you could have seen that. I could have, and I didn't. Oh. Bummer. R.I.P. Yeah. It's too See bad. if anyone we know was in it. And by we know, I mean anyone famous. And the answer is no. 
Unless, does the name James Chalmers mean anything to you? Definitely not. Okay. It's the only one that kind of sounds familiar. Mm. Um, and he played the cloaked man. <laughs> Who did not okay. make it into our summary? So you can you can tell how uh, important that role featured. is. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. yeah. A bit of a walk on, you know. Yeah. Oh, there are yeah. two cloaked cloaked mans, cloaked men. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, that's fun. Cool. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, except for the fact that this was originally in Spanish and not English, I feel like. Uh-huh. This is a very pop. It's this is full of a bunch of tropes that people like, yeah. Yeah. and and you know there are already a bunch of English plays that deal with these things. So I don't know why this one wouldn't be a good sell or mm-hmm. why it shouldn't be popular. You know, just gotta translate it. That's all. Gotta let the people know. Yeah, um, uh, we should also say that the the translation that we are working from is uh, the one that they they put up at the RSC in two thousand four, and that was translated oh, nice. by Catherine Boyle. Awesome, cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah, good to know. Because as we talked about with our last Spanish Golden Age episode, translations matter, right? Yes, they matter they a whole do. lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. So cool. Yeah, that's why this play should be popular. I mean, shit, for all I know, this is like canon in Spanish language classrooms around the globe. Who knows? I don't know. I wasn't I brought mean, up in those. I would not be surprised. Because it seemed, it's yeah. a crowd tickler, right? I, yeah. I can't imagine that just because it's not that popular amongst the English-speaking theater-going world uh, that it wouldn't be popular for Spanish speakers or those of... In other languages where it's been translated. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, now we know why it should be popular. Um, let's talk about the summary. Let's summarize this mm-hmm, fucking play. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we will now summarize the House of Desires for you in a segment that this week we're calling Hijinks and Sue. <laughs> Just hijinks, hijinks, hijinks. Yeah. Everywhere you okay. look, it's hijinks. Yep. Uh, yep. So. Doña Ana and her brother Don Pedro live in Madrid, but they are moving to Toledo for unspecified business, which I choose to believe is the mafia or some shit because I I want it to be like extra badass. Um, <laughs> it's business. Uh, Don Don Juan de Vargas follows Ana to Toledo, but Ana is falling in love with Don Carlos de Olmedo. Carlos does not love her back because he is all about Doña Leonor de Castro, even though Don Pedro has called dibs on her because, like, that's a thing that you can do is call dibs mm-hmm. on a human. 100%. Um, Leonor's dad, who's Don Rodrigo, does not approve of Carlos. So Carlos and Leonor plan to elope. Mm-hmm. That's not going to go wrong. That's no. all going to go perfectly to it? plan. End yes. of play. Uh-huh. Great. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. In the second part, Anna discovers that she and Leonor are in love with the same dude just before Carlos and his servant Castaño arrive at Anna and Don Pedro's house as fugitives from justice. Anna agrees to hide them, but then Anna's maid, Celia, brings Juan to stay at the house too. Uh-oh. And in a super hilarious, awkward scene that takes place totally in the dark, Juan gets mad at Anna for not being in love with him rude but because it's in the dark he doesn't know he's not actually talking to anna but leonore instead everybody has conversations thinking that they're talking to other people and it's always wrong and when celia finally brings uh, the light everyone is really confused 
Uh, Juan and Leonor assume that Anna is Carlos's lover. Carlos is a stand-up guy, though, and he refuses to doubt Leonor's love for him. Um, Carlos then threatens his servant, Castaño, and sends him off to tell Leonor's dad about all the hijinks. Castaño doesn't want to be recognized, so he steals some of Leonor's clothes and dresses as a woman mm-hmm. because amazing. Um, while he is disguised as Leonor, sort of, uh, he runs into Don Pedro, who immediately assumes that Castaño is making fun of Leonor. Um, but then Castaño's like, no, 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 I am Leonor. <laughs> <laughs> And he he finally, like, makes his escape by promising to marry Pedro that very night. Um, more and more mistaken identities ensue, but pretty much everyone lives happily ever after together. Um, so Carlos and Leonor stay together, Anna and Juan hook up, and then Castaño and Celia get together as well. The only one who remains single is Don Pedro, um, because he's basically, like, being punished for trying to steal away another man's partner in the first place. He broke the bro code. He broke he the bro pay. code. That's, you know, that's, yeah, that's, that's the, the moral of the story. Don't break the bro code. Also, do it. women are humans and you can't call dibs on them. Fuck no. off. Yeah. Yeah, Don Pedro. Seriously. You big jerk. Seriously. <laughs> what a silly, silly play. I, oh, we should say delightful. this play is divided somewhat oh, differently. Yeah, yeah than, it's divided than a regular into... play days yeah so it's it's like three acts but they're called days and then there's scenes within the days yeah right so so this play takes place over three days Mm -hmm. um so that's helpful Mm -hmm. thanks sor juana for labeling it like that yeah Um, yeah so it does kind of break the mold of uh of uh the five act thing that um a lot of early modern Mm -hmm. and uh plays adhere to although this is really interesting um so i have this i have this anthology of spanish golden age drama mm-hmm. um which is the where it's still sitting on my desk from when we did fuente Olona. Mm-hmm. um and house of desires is in this as well except um it's translated as trials of a noble house um and it is not divided into days. It is in two acts. Oh, weird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's Which a translation thing. I think then. I think it must be, yeah. Um, huh. Yeah. Huh. So that's that's super, super interesting. Textual um, instability. Yeah, right. Uh, Life is a Dream, which is Calderon de la Barca, has mm-hmm. three acts. Uh, Fuente Ovahuna has three acts. Okay. Um. Yeah, I wonder if the five act thing is more English than anyone else. English than Spanish. Yeah. The dog in the manger also has three acts. Oh yeah, we did talk about this in the did episode, we? and I did say something along those lines. Ooh, but the I'm siege, just having the biggest brain fart. The siege of Numancia, which is Cervantes, um, has four acts. Hmm. <laughs> so I don't. Well, all right. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Maybe there's nothing to make of that. Maybe it was yeah. just much more freeform for the yeah. Spanish. That's that's fine. Whatever. 
Anyway, right uh, you want to yeah. read some of this play? <laughs> yes. Uh, now it's time for a taste of text uh, in which we read a, a short segment of the play to give you a little bit of its flavor. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to look today at um, what our translation is calling Day 3, Scene 5. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 where where shall we start and where shall and how much shall we read um i think we should start at the top okay and then i think we should go to the middle of 86 okay um before don pedro's aside so stop it okay okay yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. This one is is your choice. So, which character would you like to read, Don Pedro or Castaño? I would like to be Castaño. <laughs> Great. Cool. All right. So, for a little bit of context, folks, this is the part of the play that we told you about where Castaño thinks it's a great idea to disguise himself as or in some of Leonor's clothes, and then doubles down on actually being her when caught. So, uh, here we go. Beautiful, Leonore, what are you, where are you going in your cloak at this hour? Celia did well to tell me that Leonore was fleeing to a convent. Where are you off to in such a hurry? Good God, he takes me for Leonore. I must have got it spot on if he wants to unveil me. Why so silent, Leonore? Where are you going, my Leonore? Hark at his Leonoring. Leonore this, Leonore that. If he's so sure I'm Leonore, I'll pretend to be her. Maybe if I change my voice, he won't understand me. Why don't you answer, my lady? Is not my love worthy of response? Why do you wish to leave my house? Is it an offense to love you so purely, to be so truly in love with you that even knowing you love another, I am so attentive to your obligations, you, your honor and all you have at stake that, come what may, I am determined to marry you? In your situation, it is surely more becoming to protect your duty rather than your desires. Can it be possible that you are not moved by my nobility, my character, and my estate to treat me less severely? Am I so unworthy, my lady? And if that is the case, do my displays of love not afford me some recognition? Consider wisely. Is it not better to have found to have for a husband an ungallant man who loves you than a gallant man who despises you? What a great thing to be buttered up like this. No wonder women are all so stuck up. All this begging would turn anyone's head. Time to give this fool the runaround. <clears throat> Don Pedro, I would prefer not to impart the real reason for my departure, but since you oblige me, I'm off because your meanness is starving me to death. You're a miserable git. Your sister's a mare. The maidservants are all hags. The manservants are all pigs. And I've had it up to here. I'm off to a cake shop for some cream buns. What is this I hear? Such language. Is this really the brilliant and beautiful Doña Leonor? My lady, I am greatly confused by such insults against my noble family. If you want to discourage me, you could try by other means and not with these words, which do you little justice. Let me be clear. You are starving me to death. Or is that double Dutch to you? It is not double 
Dutch, my lady, but I do not understand you when you use such language. Well, if you do not understand that, see if you understand this. Castaño makes to go. Stop! You must not go. I cannot allow you to leave. I have told your father that you are here, and in a short time I must give him proof of your presence. Even if you do not wish to marry me, it'll be easier for me if he sees that the resistance to marriage comes not from me, but you. Don Pedro, you are an imbecile, and you are taking a great liberty from stopping a woman in my position from going out to stuff her belly. Indeed. <laughs> so silly. So very silly. Very, so, very silly. So silly. Uh, well, that was lofty. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's talk um, about it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, just shout out to Molly Ceramet for teaching me absolutely everything I know about Sor Juana. Um, Yay, most thank of, you, Molly. Most of this information comes from her. Um, we had originally intended to have her on this for this episode, but, you know, uh, life <laughs> schedules. Yeah. It happens. Um, So just, you know, Molly's here with us in spirit. And um, here we go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Sor Juana wrote House of Desires in celebration of the birth of her patron son. And then at the end, um, in some sort of the like, not interstitial, but um, like the prologue and epilogue stuff, um, there's mention of congratulations for a guy whose name is Archbishop Aguiar, maybe? Uh-huh. Okay. Aguiar, uh, who is a guy who fucked her over later in life, okay? Mm, so, okay. Um, so she writes the play in the early 1680s. Um, the first performance is 1683, so somewhere around in there. Okay. And then later, so in 1690, Sor Juan is having this conversation with her friend, the Bishop of Puebla, not the Archbishop. These are two different bishops. One is an arch and one is not. <laughs> um, okay. So the Bishop of Puebla, right? So during this, during this conversation that they're having, she critiques this old sermon given by a Portuguese Jesuit priest whose name is Antonio de Vieira. Um, to be clear, the sermon that she is critiquing is 40 years old at this point. So they're okay. just like having this conversation, right? Sort of theological discussion, whatever. And so the bishop's like, ooh, Sorwana, you're making some really good points. Like, could you write them down for me? And she's like, yeah, bro, I got you. And then he fucking publishes her thoughts without her knowledge or her permission. And alongside that publication, he writes commentary condemning Sorwana for her intellectualism. Um, however, this bitch doesn't even like sign his own name to this he does it under a pen name and takes on a female identity what a fucking coward this this bullshit yeah so this leaves Sorwana open to attack from Archbishop Aguiar, who hated women because, like, the patriarchy. Yeah. Okay. So in response to this kerfuffle, um, Sorwana writes a refutation of the bishop's condemnation. She defends herself. She defends women's right to an education. However, pressure is ultimately too great for her to maintain her, you know, intellectual salon way of life. Um, so in 1693, she gives up her library. She gives up her intellectual pursuits. She spends the remainder of her life serving her convent and ministering to the sick and the poor. And then if you remember back like 20 minutes to when we said it, she dies in 1695 from the plague. So. So let me get this straight. (laughs) Yeah. Some bishop. 
uh-huh. came in, asked for her opinion on something, yep. didn't like what he heard, uh-huh. published it, yeah, shit on it under yep. a pseudonym, got uh-huh. her in trouble, yep. and it resulted in like fucking up her whole life. Yep. That's exactly what happened. Are you fucking kidding me? I am not fucking kidding you. Jesus Christ. Yeah. This poor woman. Justice for Sor Juana. Yes. What? (laughs) Yes. What the fuck? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So not that that really has anything to do with the play, (laughs) except that the play was written as a celebration, sort of, of Aguiar, sort of. Um, And that led me to this anecdote about men who suck. So it feels here's what's sad is that that kind of bullshit feels very familiar to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's still happening. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Like 300 plus years later. That is so fucked up. (gasps) Yeah. These men. These men. He words me, girls. He words me. What the fuck, dude? Yeah. So anyway, that's literally all I have to say. Um, but it's cool and worth talking about. So Dang. I mean, not cool, but important. <laughs> <laughs> like no, it's deeply yes. uncool. Deeply, deeply uncool. Um, yeah, super yeah. not cool. Um, yeah, yeah. I oh goddamn. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fine. I just wow. Ugh. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about this when we when we talked about Fuente Ovahuna, but like my my brain always goes to first and foremost, who is the translator? How are they translating? What choices are they making? And and I'm really glad that we did the like the scene that we read feels really contemporary, right? It feels like um like the translator chose like english idioms right and and so they because there's there's always an issue when you're translating like do you want to do it word for word or do you want to try to find like um you know sometimes idioms don't translate between languages right and there are like turns of phrase in one language that just don't Mm -hmm. exist in the other language yep yeah um so like there it's a very delicate balance there like and really do you want to translate like the tone and what you can glean of the intent or do you just want to do like a word for word Thing and try to preserve mm-hmm. whatever verse there might be and this does not appear to be written in verse um that i or at least not translated in verse uh it's lineated kind of funny it doesn't look totally like prose mm-hmm. but not every uh first letter on the left hand side is capitalized so um correct me if i'm wrong here though like you did teach this to your students did, i did did you, did you guys talk about prose versus verse at all and like not in this okay. context no in it, in in other plays yes but not in yeah, this one but not for this one yeah um, not that it totally matters but when yeah. you're translating it does it's you know. super super versy in mm-hmm. the other translation i have in this anthology yeah 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 um, see yeah um so it looks like maybe maybe this translator kept what looks like the lineation maybe, but like um, not so much like there were not, we didn't, whatever we read, just read, like did not have rhyming couplets. It didn't, you know, it wasn't that kind of um, poetry. It was blank verse at best. Um, and I yeah. couldn't really discern any meter either. So, I'm, so I'm trying to find that scene that we read in this other translation. Um, and importantly, 
I can't find it, but I'm going to keep looking. Um, but <laughs> castaño in this translation is called chestnut. Interesting. Which I guess must be the English translation of castaño, but also why translate his name and no one else's? Yeah, why anglicize his name, I wonder. Maybe because yeah. he's a servant and a clown and yeah, maybe they, I don't know. Chestnut is kind of a funny servant name, I guess. Yeah, yeah like the art of translation, man. It, it really, and like choosing a good translator affects so much about the story that you're going to tell. Um, oh, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty different. Mm-hmm. It's pretty different. The The funniest part is um, where our text was like, oh, he's really he's really Leonoring me. Um, Hark at this Leonoring, yeah, Leonor this, yeah, yeah. Leonor that. Uh-huh. Yeah. He says in this one, he's really Lee-annoying me. Huh. <laughs> Which is really good. Huh. Um, yeah. But there's no Leonor this, Leonor that. It's he's really annoying me. But since he's taken me for her, I'll juggle two identities and raise my voice's pitch a bit to keep this ruse from being discerned. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And this one is much more colloquial. Like he mm-hmm. says, hark at this Leonoring, Leonor this, Leonor that. Mm-hmm. If he's so sure I'm Leonor, I'll pretend to be her. Maybe if I change my voice, he won't understand me. Like mm-hmm. that feels much more contemporary and colloquial. Yeah. Um, which is clearly a choice, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Because oh, yeah. the, the text that we read was for performance, mm-hmm. whereas this one in this anthology is, I mean, it's a critical edition. It is for reading. It is for study. It's for academic mm-hmm. pursuits. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's another thing Castaño says, you know, he says, um, what a great thing it is to be buttered up like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, there's another part where he says, I'll give him the runaround. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. And those are very like distinctly, I feel like English things to say. I, I don't yeah. know um, if if there's a buttered up. Um, I'm sure there's yeah. something like it in Spanish, it's... but they don't say buttered up. Yeah. Right? No. Um, for one thing, mantequilla is a mouthful so like (laughs) that's butter yeah (laughs) like um yeah in this one it's instead of it's nice to be buttered up it's it's quite a thrill to be pursued yeah um so so you know when you're thinking about this play in terms of production think about what kind of text you want right do you want and it's totally i think it's totally valid if somebody had chosen the other text for performance if they'd wanted to try that right um, but you know, it, would it be as effective on stage? Would it be as funny? I'm not sure. Right. Um, so, so that, that's a huge, huge thing. Um, other stuff to think about in terms of producing this play is like, how are you going to play with that darkness though? You know, uh, in a traditional theater where you can turn the lights off, mm-hmm. would you, would you, would you spotlight folks and have them alone in their own like little tight pools of light and not yeah. see anybody else i might Would you yeah you know uh in a in a <clears throat> place like the black friars or actually in a in a traditional spanish golden age theater which was also mm-hmm. dependent on daylight right mm-hmm. um they would have had universal lighting so like how uh you know if you were going the original practices route how would you stage this um and and play with the the multiple mistaken identities in the dark, you know, um, and the, of course the balance always comes when you're doing that of playing darkness without like overplaying darkness and making it dumb and pantomimey, right? Unless that's what you're going for, in which mm-hmm. case, valid choice, um, I guess. But again, thinking you know some choices are more effective than others. Um, so yeah, what would you do 
with all of that darkness? Would you actually put people in the dark and then just highlight only their voices? That could be a fun a fun thing to play with too. You know, black out your theater and just mm-hmm. listen to their voices. You know, um, so those are some that that feels to me that scene feels like the the buck basket scene. Yeah. Um, but not for the usual reasons that a scene is a buck basket scene. It's not like overly full of stuff. It's just darkness and a bunch of people. <laughs> um, gesundheit. Sorry. Or as they say in Spanish, salud. Salud. Uh, salud. Amor. Dinero. <laughs> oh, is that for three sneezes? That's for, yeah. <laughs> nice. The first is salud. The second is uh, amor. And the third is dinero. Uh-huh. I don't know what they do after that i think because i always sneeze in multiples and i think in the class where i learned that um the the uh professora um just cycled back to the beginning every time that i hit more than three (laughs) that's true i've heard you do like you know half a dozen sneezes oh yeah i'm a big sneezer it's a yeah it's impressive impressive. well Um, i'm an impressive lady (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so then, you know, you've got your classic like facial blindness. I mean, clearly Castaño putting on Leonor's clothes made him the spitting image mm-hmm. of Leonor because, you know, a woman mm-hmm. is only her clothes. So she has no identifiable features on her face. It's yeah. just her. It's just the clothes on her body that make her who she is. There's actually <laughs> some really good scholarship on the the importance of clothes and like how how changing your clothes actually would um, like plausibly Mm -hmm. contribute to early modern facial blindness. Um, Mm -hmm. But it has been so much time since I read it that I can't remember anything else about it, except that like clothes are important. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would imagine it's wrapped up in sumptuary laws too, Mm -hmm. a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Like what you're allowed to wear and not allowed to wear on a day to day basis. And if you, if you transgress those boundaries, then somebody would you definitely would be wearing something people don't expect you to be in which can be jarring you know um so so yeah um but also you know the facial blindness never ceases to be funny it's just always funny always fucking funny um yeah yeah it's always funny and i think is this this feels to me like the first time at least you and i have done a play on, on this podcast together where it's the guy putting on a dress and not being recognized. Am I right about that? Cause usually like, you know, the classic like pa- girl in pants roles, right? Yeah. And she's not recognized. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to rack my brain for another instance. We've had a couple of, I feel like in one of those revenge tragedies, somebody dressed like a lady, but maybe I'm just making that up in my head. But like, I, th- I feel like this is the first time where that's been inverted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where a guy puts on a lady's clothes and then is, is not recognizable. Because we didn't, I, I don't... think that happens in Volpone, but we didn't talk, we haven't done an episode on Volpone. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I, nothing is coming to mind, but that yeah. doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, we might put out a correction on the next episode then if anybody fact checks us or if we bother yeah. to fact check ourselves. Right. I probably won't. Because nope. as I said before, all of my opinions are true and correct 100% of the time. <laughs> first time out of the game. So. Yeah. <laughs> Facts For those who facts. can't discern sarcasm, please understand that I'm being sarcastic when I say this shit. Yeah. I don't actually think it's true. I haven't thought that since 1995. So. <laughs> good job, good job, good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's all I got. I, I really want to see this play done more often. So get yeah. on it, people. Yeah. Get on yeah. It. Um, <sighs> let's gossip a little bit. Yeah. 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 Jess, okay. you, you have the floor. Take it away. Um, <laughs> if you want to. It's yeah, no, I do. I very, very do. Subject. I'm, I'm trying to find the original email real fast. Oh, sure. Um, okay. Just content warning for one. folks like me who get like unbridled rage when we start talking anti-Stratfordian stuff. Oh, yeah. Just buckle up. It's coming. Okay. So I, uh, about two weeks ago, not quite two weeks ago, but a week and a half ago, received an email. Me? And basically everyone else I know mm -hmm. at a university. We all Academic got this email Twitter was the blowing same up. time. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is a, a request for us to fill out the 2023 Shakespeare faculty survey. Um, and the email reads thus. Dear Professor Jessica Hamlet, which like fuck off for calling me Jessica, but whatever. It's beside the point. Um in this 400th anniversary year of the publication of the first folio of Shakespeare's Collected Plays, we are conducting a survey of faculty members who teach Shakespeare at American four-year colleges and universities. We are contacting you today based on your position to invite you to participate in the study. We would like to learn what you think about the front matter to the first folio and about the Shakespeare authorship question, the question of whether Shakespeare's works were written primarily by Shakespeare, Stratford-upon-Avon, or by another author or authors. This survey is a follow-up survey to an earlier study conducted by the New York Times in 2007. Your identity will be kept confidential. Answers will only be reported in aggregate. If you participate, you can get a gift card, blah, 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 blah. Um, here's who is doing the survey, etc. Please respond. Um, and I immediately emailed back and I mean, I'm, first of all, I immediately took the survey because I'm a messy bitch who lives for the drama. Um, and then I immediately emailed back and was like, hi, you know, I'd be really interested to see the data from the survey. Will it be, you know, made available publicly? Um, and then I got an email back from the chairman and CEO of the Shakespeare Authorship Coalition, which also PS, your acronym is SAC and just like make better choices with your life. <laughs> or don't it's, or don't yeah it's just gonna make you an object of my ridicule yes um so <laughs> so he says you know dear jessica hamlet which again fuck off with my full name but whatever um here's who i am i think i can assure you that the data will be made available to the public at some point but i am not sure yet exactly how or when that will be done we're interested in seeing and analyzing the results ourselves first but i will keep mm. you in mind and will let you know when they are available Hmm. Um, also, this guy is in Claremont, if that is interesting to you at all. Claremont as in Southern California? As in SoCal. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now let's walk through the survey because, yeah, I screenshotted yes, absolutely please. every single question. Of course Because <laughs> I'm a messy bitch who lives for the drama. Yay. Those at home, you can take the survey with us orally. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, okay. So the first okay. question how much thought, how much thought have you given to the Shakespeare authorship question? A lot, some, not much, none. Not much. Yeah, that was my answer also. Um, question number two. Do you think that there is good reason to question whether William Shakespeare of Stratford is the principal author of the plays and poems in the canon? Yes, no, possibly, I don't know. Absolutely not. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> 
Do you think the identity of the author of Shakespeare's works is an important question? Yes or no? No. Do you think the authorship question should be addressed in classes about Shakespeare? Yes, no, no opinion. No. Do you address the Shakespeare authorship question in your own Shakespeare class? Yes, not no, unless, only if a student asks mm, about it. Yeah, not unless I'm forced to by some yep. asshole. Yep. Yeah, no. Do you think that teaching about the authorship question in classes on Shakespeare's works might increase students' interest in and motivation to learn more about Shakespeare's works? Yes, no, possibly? No. How familiar would you say you are with the front matter to the first folio? Not at all, not very, somewhat, very. Somewhat? Oh, I I, guess. I'm very, I think. Yeah, I haven't I haven't stared at my facsimile in a while, so right. not that much. But also, like, all of these questions are so leading. Um, well, they a, would be, wouldn't they? Yes. They, there a, is some very specific uh-huh. data that they want, so. Yes. As a friend of mine and a friend of yours and a friend of the pod said, uh, none of these questions would pass the sniff test at my university's internal review board. <laughs> Mm. this is not this anyway um, this is not good data collection it's not people. good do not data model collection your quantitative or qualitative data on these yeah. types of questions don't do that don't, don't do, do that, that. uh bad. question number i don't even know what we're on now um how <laughs> confident are you that the front matter to the first folio clearly identifies shakespeare of stratford as the author of the shakespeare canon not at all not very somewhat very i don't know not very. Again, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it because this doesn't matter to me. Uh-huh. Okay. What do you think is the most important aspect of the first folio front matter that points to Shakespeare of Stratford as the author? Option one, the famous engraving of Shakespeare on the title page. Option two, Ben Jonson's poem to the reader on the page opposite the engraving. Option three, John Hemmings and Henry Condell's claim to have collected and edited the plays. Option four, Ben Jonson's allusion to Shakespeare in his eulogy to him as Sweet Swan of Avon. Option five, Leonard Diggs's reference in his poem to Shakespeare to, quote, thy Stratford monument. I think There's I gotta so go. Many that's a lot of options. I gotta go with like either of the Ben Jonson options only because okay. knowing who Ben Jonson was as a person, like, right. why would he write that for a fake person? Why would he put his, rep- his own reputation on the line if it were a fake Fair. person? Um, the next question is, what is the second most important of all of those things? Sure, and then, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, here we go. <clears throat> those who question the authorship point to some aspects of the front matter that they think raise doubts about whether it unequivocally identifies Shakespeare of Stratford as the author. The next few questions describe some of these and ask for your views of their authorship implications. The front matter gives little identifying information about the author. No dates of birth and death, no names of family members, no tributes from his collaborators, no Shakespeare coat of arms, and nowhere is the author referred to as William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon. What do you think these absences mean for Shakespeare's Stratford's authorship claim? Little or no impact, possibly undermines the claim, clearly undermines the claim. I don't know. No impact. (laughs) That's not... That's not what necessarily what front pages are for no to be like this is definitely the person who wrote all of these plays i want everybody to know this is the author Mm -hmm. of the plays they weren't thinking about that shit authors names were left off of quarto printings all the time yep just like by accident and oversight what the fuck yep 
or just not putting it on there because the publisher wanted to put their own fucking name on there. Yep. They always credited themselves. Like, what? Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, as you can tell. Whew, I'm getting a little hot under the collar here. Continue before I explode. <laughs> In the two introductory epistles ascribed to Shakespeare's fellow actors, John Hemming and Henry Condell, they claim to have collected, edited, and published all the plays in the first folio. But leading Shakespeare scholars have doubted this for more than two centuries and propose that Ben Jonson wrote both epistles and edited the plays. How confident are you that Hemming and Condell wrote the epistles and collected, edited, and published the plays? Not at all, not very, somewhat, very. Somewhat? Like, I'm... Not my area, necessarily. Yeah. So, yeah. like, somewhat. I, yeah. Okay. Again, In... Ben Johnson would take full credit. Ben Johnson would take full credit if he had edited and done all the legwork on that shit. Come you know, on now. Shit. That guy loved his own writing and, yeah. his, and giving himself credit for doing his own writing. So, come yeah. on now. Um, we, are, we are closing in on the end. Okay. Okay. Thank God. There's only four more. <laughs> okay. In his eulogy to Shakespeare, Johnson refers to him as Sweet Swan of Avon. This is thought to refer to the Avon River in Stratford-upon-Avon and to prove that the author is from there. But the location of Hampton Court Palace on the Thames, west of London, which was the main venue for court productions of plays under Queen Elizabeth and King James, was long known as Avon, period. Were you aware that the location of Hampton Court Palace on the Thames was known as Avon? Yes or no? No, I was not. Yeah. But again, doesn't matter. It doesn't um, matter. <laughs> ben Johnson is the only prominent writer to pen a tribute for Shakespeare in the first folio. What do you think this lack of tributes from other writers means for Shakespeare's authorship claim? little or no impact possibly undermines clearly undermines i don't know it doesn't mean anything you know why because they were pooling their money to make this folio in the first place and adding more pages would have meant adding more time and money mm -hmm. so no it doesn't mean anything yeah oh and that's it we're done okay. i was wrong about there being four left it was just those okay two. yeah wow um, so yeah but so the plot thickens as it always does of course um so you can visit Sachs website uh, at doubtaboutwill.com. No, oh, sorry, dot org. And first of all, no disrespect, but a lot of disrespect. The website looks like it was last updated in, I don't know, 2007. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. This it's is not boxy and old. Yeah. The, the okay. headline at the top is that the Times of London confirms that Prince Philip was an authorship doubter. Then it asks you to read and sign the Declaration of Reasonable Doubt about Shakespeare being the author. Your face. Stop it with your face. I can't. It's my face. <laughs> and, and then... Um, there are like two addendums to this original declaration of reasonable doubt. The first um, is whatever. And the second, the second was called part two, major discoveries, first folio and Stratford monument, which like I skimmed this. And the mm -hmm. only, the only thing that I really want to pull out, like it's all hogwash. Um, but in, Oh, I've lost it. I've lost the place. Um, at some point, uh, the sack. Oh, in 2013, 
In 2013, SAC challenged the Birthplace Trust to prove, and I'm directly quoting, in a mock trial before an unbiased panel of judges, it's claimed that it is, quote, beyond doubt that Shakespeare was Shakespeare, and to prove it, quote, beyond reasonable doubt. After they initially declined, we published the challenge in a full-page ad in the Times Literary Supplement. We hereby renew our challenge to the Birthplace Trust and 40,000 pound donation offer if they prove their case. If they still decline, we believe the public has every right to conclude that they concede the issue by default. And that's just not how that works. That's not how fights work generally. Yeah. That's like, like if I go into a bar and like push somebody and I'm like, I'll see you outside, bitch. And if you don't come, I win. And then I leave the bar. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's not how that works. Yeah. Um, they also list on their on their website, um, like all all of the all the people who have signed this um, declaration of doubt. Um, and there's a whole list of like notable signatories. Um, uh-huh. Although I can't, I can't find it now. They have Mark Rylance, Derek Jacoby, Michael York, like a but bunch like, of that's old it. school <laughs> British actors. Yeah, it's those you three know. people on their main page, and yeah. then. 200 other names that they list under like notable doubters are are not in fact yeah that oh here it is the list of notable signatories um which is 115 people and aside from those three actors there was only one name that i recognized at all where where can i find this list i might uh so if you signing page no at the at the very very top in the sidebar um, uh-huh. home declaration passed out or signing page downloads signatories. Ah, signatories. Okay. Yeah. I will say, um, you know, not to judge gender by someone's name, but it's a lot of dudes, y'all. It's a lot of dudes. It's a lot of dudes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's see. <laughs> oh, Jeremy Irons was like the, the other one oh. that surprised me. Yeah. Jeremy um, Irons. Interestingly, they do not have a signature from noted anti-Stratforian um, Kenneth Branagh. He is not on here. Yeah, interesting. Um, but they do have a, a signature from one Mr. Art Goodtimes, which like, yeah. your opinions are wrong, my dude, but your name is fan-fucking-tastic, Mr. Mm-hmm. Art Goodtimes. Um, yeah. Uh, wow. wow. Paul Nicholson. Mm-hmm who, at least in 2010, was the executive director of OSF. Um, He signed. Hmm. And this is the one that surprised me, uh, was Sandy Day O'Connor. Huh. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I went, well, that's disappointing, and then moved on with my life. (laughs) So much so that I didn't even remember that she was on this list until I'm scanning through it again just now. Um, And then John Paul Stevens, who was uh, another... Um, Supreme Court oh, justice. But yeah, it's a lot of dudes. <laughs> um, a lot of dudes. And like it's not, a lot of them have some credentials. They've got PhDs, they've got MAs. There are a couple of like MDs on this list. And I'm just like, I have questions 
<laughs> like what? But okay. you know, sure. All right. Um, like the guy who wrote the body keep score signed this list. Huh. And also in his like, who who is this person? Like, why do we care? And they're like little bio. Uh it's it's author of the body keeps score. Um, New York Times bestseller, 117 weeks, translated into 36 languages. Like, good job you for writing a best-selling book, but I don't see how that lends you credentials. Right. Yeah. How does that make you an authority on this thing? Right. Like, I don't don't think it does. (laughs) That book is about how how trauma is stored in your body. Yeah. Like, I have a PhD in Shakespeare. But last I checked, that does not make me an expert in theoretical physics or medicine. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. 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 So (sighs) anyway, like not that I want to drive traffic to their website, but it's worth hate reading. Um, Also, Mm. their Twitter account has like nine followers which is bless. hilarious and also they haven't tweeted in like three years well and yeah. i think they've only tweeted like four times total so you know live your life sack, cool. sack. um yeah Jesus. so wow wow anyway <laughs> the end yeah no they're still they're just lurking the mm-hmm. the if if you listeners have ever come across the anybody of the anti-stratfordian ilk um you know how smug they tend to be Hmm. uh with this like i i just experienced this like earlier this month i went and gave a talk down in roanoke um and and some people who while they were very excited about what i was talking about they came up to me specifically afterwards to let me know that they knew the truth (laughs) and that seriously and and that you know bless my heart i just wasn't in the know like they were about how shakespeare wasn't actually shakespeare and how the man the actual man william shakespeare they were trying to tell me didn't even fucking exist because there was no like documentary footprint of his life and i'm like bitches what are you talking about i mean yes there was yeah there was was. (laughs) and they were like he was illiterate how could he da 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 and i'm like and I literally said this to them. I was like, look, this opinion is an elitist mockery of everything that I hold dear. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to talk about it right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Goodbye. Like, I'm going to take my little finger sandwiches from this tea time talk that I did. And see you later, alligator. Um, but, like, it is a whew. And every time I've encountered folks with this opinion, it's like they just they just really want to tell you in the smuggest way possible, in the way that only true believers of dumb conspiracies can talk. Um about how wrong you are and how sad it is for you that you're not in the know about this information and how lucky and superior they are for having the secret. Um, of the, the recommended readings that they, they have oh, on their Lord. website, the first yeah. two are by the same guy. Um, one of them is in the journal, the Oxfordian and the other one Ugh. is in the Devere society newsletter so so like you're in a big old bubble sounds yeah. like a big old echo chamber bubble great cool. yeah nice um yeah there's a a whole like dedication to stephen greenblatt 
slipped up in public. I and saw that. Made some I saw comment. that on yeah, like green blatt slips is what yeah. it's called. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not like, whoa, he misspoke and he fucked up. He misspoke because he's a human fucking being, and that's what happens to people sometimes. Yeah, Jesus think... Christ. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. Um, not that I'm here to defend Stephen Greenblatt, because I'm not, right. but also just like, ugh, 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 yeah, ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, beware, folks. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is the this is the broad appeal of any conspiracy theory, is that it yeah. makes you feel like you belong, it makes you feel like you have secret knowledge that puts you above everybody else in some type of way. Like, that's why people so readily want to believe a lot of these things. Um, and weirdly, like how people get sucked into other stuff, like like the MAGA cult and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like like this is just a slippery slope, anti Stratfordians. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so watch out. But wow, well that's <sighs> exasperating and exhausting. Although I did see the of of the academic Twitter that I do catch yeah. a glimpse of, they were having a field day. Yeah, with it. Which is always fun. Watching yeah. watching scholars go ham on something they really hate is one of my yeah. favorite things to do. So it's a good time. It's a good, good, <laughs> good, good time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean pff, that's it. That's all we got for the gossip. That's enough. It's a, it's more than enough. It's that's, way again. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Time to put it to bed. Thank you so much yep. for listening, folks. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. <laughs> Tune in next time for our penultimate episode. We're calling it 10 Things We Hate About Shakespeare. Yay! I love that title. I don't know what it's going to be. I did. (laughs) No, I made it up like two hours ago, but yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Like today. It's a today creation. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it. Um, I can't wait. I can't. I don't know what that episode's going to be, but I can't wait. It's going to be fun. It's going to be 10 Things We Hate About Shakespeare. It does what it says on the tin. (laughs) You get five, I get five. We hate things about Shakespeare. Yay. It's going to be a good time. Cool. So, Whamlet out. Whamlet out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The land on which I live and work, colonially known as Stanton, Virginia, is the unceded territory of the Monacan Confederation of Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. The traditional custodians of the land on which I live are the Lenape Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Learn about where you live at native-land.ca. Get involved at ndncollective.org and find out more about the Landback campaign at landback.org. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. I need you to rethink your views on Monty Python, so I think we're at a detente. See? Uh, I think actually we're at an <laughs> impasse. Whatever. Isn't that what a detente is? I don't no, know. No, I think my a detente is a. a laying down of arms oh like a ceasefire i think that's what that is detente yeah the 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 easing of hostility or strained relations especially between countries ah okay well (laughs) (laughs) the nation of swifties will just have to overlook this one flaw my only flaw
<laughs> I love you. <laughs> <laughs>